It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Finally, some stability at the top of the Premier League. Leicester, Manchester City, Arsenal went into the weekend holding the league's top three spots, and they'll reach the league's next round in those same positions. Thank God for the FA Cup. We'll touch on that competition's fourth round briefly, and we'll also talk about the transfers that have gone through this weekend as the winter window's final days approach. Welcome, everybody, to the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll get to that preview in the second half of the show, but as I welcome my co-host Kartik Krishnayer into the pod, we're a few hours removed from some major news. John Terry, one of the best defenders in the Premier League's short history, revealed that Chelsea does not intend to offer him a contract for next season. Over his two-plus decades in Chelsea's academy and first team, well, those days will come to an end in May. Kartik, what were your first thoughts when you heard that news? That it was bizarre and that there must be some sort of money-related issue here because I, I think what we're seeing is that Chelsea has trimmed their squad, the size of their squad. They're using, uh, obviously, the loan system to recoup a lot of finances. Now, part of that is financial fair play, but uh, they're, they're not quite as deep as they've been in the past. They're not quite as uh, top-heavy as far as uh, player salaries. And we've seen them actually plummet in the Deloitte Money League now down to 7th or 8th where they at one point, we're third or fourth in that. So it's um, – I'm not saying that Roman Abramovich is having major financial worries, but I think that they're being much more prudent in how they, they spend money. That having been said, they're not re-signing JT when they've re-signed Ivanovich. That is kind of strange. Hmm. That is interesting. And I think it's a it's kind of a comeback for those people that are merely going to say this is performance-related. Of course, there's an age issue there between the two. But even if it's performance-related, I find it hard to believe John Terry wouldn't be one of the team's best four or five defenders next year. Unless they're, they're really going to go out and spend a lot of money uh, in the summer. Who knows? It's Chelsea. They could definitely do that. I, I think it's a, a bit sad. John Terry, of course, is somebody that has a very mixed history. On the field, he's been one of the better, not just defenders, but players in the Premier League. Era, certainly one of the most decorated non-Manchester United players in the Premier League era, uh, but off the field has definitely divided divided followers between fans and people who don't really like Chelsea. Those are the. What do you think of uh, his future, Kartik? It seems like at 35, 36 years old, it might be a good time to do as Jamie Carragher did and just retire. It might be. That's an option. He could go to China. That's an option. Mm-hmm. He could go to the Middle East. He could go to Major League Soccer. We've seen. Uh, his former teammate, Ashley Cole, former defensive line partner, Ashley Cole, just signed with the Los Angeles Galaxy this week on a very low salary contract, by the way. Uh, Ashley Cole is not a designated player in Major League Soccer. He's taking 
the salary of basically an American journeyman veteran player. Yeah, something that is very confusing to people outside of Major League Soccer circles because they just assume that the only reason Ashley Cole would come here is if he's getting millions of dollars to do so. Right. So Ashley Cole is actually making less money than uh, several uh, American players who our listeners may not have heard of, quite honestly, unless you follow Major League Soccer and the U.S. men's national team closely. So that is that possibility. Uh, There's also the possibility of uh, potentially playing on the continent in Italy, maybe. Uh, Italy seems like a good fit, though. Yeah, I don't think he could play. Yeah, I don't think he could play in Germany or Spain at this at this point in his career. So maybe Italy for a season. Uh, I don't know that he'd want to do that, though. I think the options would probably be uh, the U.S. or China or, or going into commentary. Some people might say Zenit St. Petersburg would be a good fit for him. We'll probably have a few more months to consider John Terry's legacy, but it is going to be five months to consider. This is a person that has been as good as any other player in the Premier League, and much like Steven Gerrard's departure at Liverpool last year, definitely an end of an era, no matter what you think about the player. As for the rest of the news this weekend, they largely centered around the FA Cup. We're not going to dig deep on it, but we are going to talk about some things that could influence the Premier League going forward. Uh, in the fourth round, which took place this weekend, the only Premier League teams to fully bow out were Aston Villa and Stoke. Villa losing at home 4-0 to Manchester City, while Stoke actually gave up a goal to Crystal Palace, losing at Selhurst Park. Not surprisingly, they didn't score a goal. As for other matters, we have a couple of teams going to replays. West Ham and Liverpool will go to a replay. West Brom could not win at home against Peterborough. But as far as the rest of the results, Kartik, I think a few points stand out. Manchester United on Friday got the round kicked off at Derby, scored three goals, which is an incredible rarity for Manchester United. And just on the surface, I think they are improving a little bit in attack. Yeah, certainly a better performance than they gave against Sheffield United a third-tier side in the previous round at Old Trafford. Darby, it should be noted, is in a free fall in the championship, and they, Mel, Mel Morris, their new owner, is going to have to make some decisions at the end of the season. They have a very bloated squad by championship standards in terms of salary, and they might have to break that thing up because I don't think they're getting promoted. Hmm. The thing I would say about United is I'm not sure they're really improving. I think Wayne Rooney is getting back to his form and giving us some nice Rooney moments. And Rooney is one of the best players in the history of this league. But I'm not sure I'm seeing a whole lot from the rest of the United squad to indicate that beyond Rooney returning to his natural level, because he was he was in a massive funk for several months, <laughs> that this team has actually gotten better. You know, Rooney's annual funk. Uh, somebody that doesn't have the same track record, but uh, somebody that plays for the blue half of Manchester. Somebody after this weekend, we have to wonder how much of an impact he can make on the rest of the Premier League race. Because Manchester City has had a problem finding replacements for Kun Aguero during his injury spells this year. Wilfried Boney has been disappointment. And a young player from the academy, Caliche Iheanacho, has had to step in. Well, Iheanacho had a hat-trick this weekend at Villa Park. And Kartik, I can't help but think, for City fans, this has to be a... I don't know if relief is the right word, but it has to be a cause for hope because you actually have somebody that might be able to provide some production where production is really the only standard. Yeah, it's been a long time since a youth player has been integrated fully into the Manchester City squad. He's the first one since maybe Micah Richards, Michael Johnson, that Mm. class of players. Uh, Michael Um, Johnson. yeah, my well, Michael Johnson, Stephen Ireland was part of that class. Ihenaccio is a special player. I already, by my count, he's rescued three seasons for Manchester City. Um, the uh, the game-winning goal against Crystal Palace and then was instrumental in the comeback uh, to equalize last week against West Ham. Let's true. not forget that. Very and true. When he came on, that game changed and Aguero got the equalizer. But without Ihenaccio on the pitch, that equalizer doesn't happen. Actually, he had another game-winning goal 
against Swansea early season. So I guess that's five. So he's already had an impact on the title race. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in fairness, someone else might have gotten that particular answer if he hadn't been on. But the Palace won in the West Ham games. Uh, the results were were shifted because he came on. He is giving Pellegrini some headaches now in the sense that I think Pellegrini likes the guy's talent, wanted to bring him in very slowly this season, didn't buy another striker uh, to replace. Uh, both Jovetic and Jekko were sold. He didn't buy a striker to replace either one of them because he thought Inacio could give spot minutes. And it'd be good to give him a run out late in games several times this season in the Premier League. What instead has happened is he's become an integral core player, leaving Wilfred Bonet, who's had some injury problems and has been inconsistent, off on the side to the point where Manchester City supporters are like, why don't we just dump Bonet? Why don't we get rid of him? There's been some talk of discontent with Bonet. He put that down this week. But now it's caused a little bit of a headache where I I think in Pellegrini's mind, he would still be more confident in sticking Wilfred Bonet in late in matches to uh, change the complexion of games when City is chasing a goal or chasing chasing three points. But Inaccio has played so well, and the, the, the media and the fans have talked about him so much that when Pellegrini doesn't put him on, he's getting savage. And that seems to be the takeaway. I run the uh, SB Nation site for Manchester City, Bitter and Blue. That seems to be the takeaway after every match where Inaccio doesn't play or comes on late. Well, Pellegrini doesn't have faith in this youngster. Why does he persist with Bone? Why does he even pers- put uh, Sterling or Navas on instead of him? Why isn't he playing all the time? So it's a it's a bit of a dilemma. I think one thing that needs to be considered by those fans and other people is the fit with Aguero, too. I don't think Boney and Aguero really fit well together. They don't seem to play off each other very much. I think I think a lot of that has to do with Boney. And stylistically, it doesn't seem like he's ever quite fit the tempo and the way that Pellegrini's teams have... This Pellegrini team has been groomed to play. And I think Iannaccio fits that a little bit more. And I... I think Pellegrini has always liked the option of going with two strikers and then having those two interiores coming in from the wide positions. And given the personnel right now, even with De Bruyne going out for what looks like two and a half months right now with ankle and knee injuries, you still have Silva and Sterling to play at that level. You can substitute Navas in when you think you have an advantage against the left fullback. You've got some depth in uh, in deep midfield now that Fabian Delph seems to have integrated and been a very positive addition to this team. I just like Iannaccio. Maybe he's not the better player, but he seems like the better complement to the team. Yeah, I think he's the better player to play off of Aguero. That's a very good point. And the, the other thing you can do with Iannaccio is you can dro- he can drop into midfield and play as kind of a, a, a hybrid striker off of Aguero if, let's say, Silva has to be subbed out now that De Bruyne is injured and Nasri continues to be injured. So that's something Boney doesn't give you. And in the way the Premier League season has evolved, Iheanacho is probably the better fit this season with the players he's playing around, too, with the Silvas, with the Swings, with the Navases. So uh, I think the writing is a bit on the wall for Wilfred Bone, but the talk is Pellegrini won't be around next season. So maybe that's the reset button for Bone, or it's also possible he's gone in the summer. Yeah, he seems like a really good signing for... A Newcastle, a Sunderland, those teams that tend to pony up, you know, 14, 15 million transfer fees for these players that are coming back. I wonder if Sunderland would do do that again with Manchester City because City has pawned both Adam Johnson and Jack Rodwell (laughs) off on Sunderland for what are really exorbitant fees considering their their level of production, low level of production. That's that's very, very true. Uh, Plus, those were English players, too. So maybe there was a slight uh, markup on those players. Uh, Let's move on from Manchester City. Let's briefly talk about Arsenal. Alexis Sanchez 
came back this weekend, scored a meaningful goal as Arsenal had a, a little bit more difficulty with Burnley at the Emirates than I think most fans were anticipating. Sanchez got the winning goal in the 2-1 victory there. This is a big thing for the title race, Kartik. We're looking for these little points of differentiation between the top three teams. And if we can't find those points of differentiation, then we have to consider whether Spurs can continue to make up the gap. Getting Alexi Sanchez back, particularly as Metsu also slowed down a little bit over the last three or four weeks, could be a huge addition to this team. It very well could be a huge addition. Danny Welbeck has also begun training again. That's another big mm. deal that will also justify Wenger not going out and signing another striker, at least for now until uh, Welbeck gets injured again. But that's uh, good news for Arsenal. Coughlin is back. Sanchez is back. Welbeck is about to be back. Wilshire nowhere near being back. Yeah. Although he might be offered a new contract. Yeah, I didn't. I think Wilshire has had another setback. It's going to be a couple of months still now. Um, Thomas Rosicki is back though too. I, I don't know if that's going to be a, be a big deal. Oh but, right, I forgot about that. But well, so, he's a, he, he's a guy that I mean, he's he, a versatile, he, capable player. It's just yes. Arsenal has a lot of players, so it might depend on the health around Rosicki as to whether he's he's even making game day 18s. Let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about Liverpool. Nil-nil result, playing mostly kids at home at Anfield against a West Ham team that pretty much threw out their first-string squad. On the surface, it's a good result. You have mostly your academy guys. They uh, don't get eliminated from the FA Cup against one of the better teams in the Premier League. Dig a little bit deeper. Liverpool, I believe at this point, is committed to raising their games played total to 58 this year. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact numbers, either 58 or 59. They go a little bit farther in Europa League, go a little bit farther in the FA Cup. It's not hard to imagine that number stretching to 63, 65. It's just a lot of games for this squad to play. Yeah, well, the kids were all right in this game, so to speak, because they uh, held West Ham. They looked pretty good in the process, and West Ham has absolutely run our, uh, excuse me, not Arsenal, Liverpool off the pitch twice this season in Premier mm. League play. Those are two of the worst games. The, the single worst game under Klopp was the game at Upton Park. I yeah. think the game that probably got Rodgers to sack, even though he wasn't sacked after it, it, it was another month, was the game against uh, West Ham where they got beat 3-0 at, uh, at Anfield, even though West Ham was down to 10 men for 15 or 20 minutes at the end of that match. So this was a good result, and the kids looked pretty good in the process. But now we have another replay for Liverpool. I, I think you mentioned 58 or 59 games. Assuming they get past uh, the next round in Europa League, that will jump into the 60s. It's, um, it's a problem for a squad that's not very deep. They were deep at the beginning of the season, but they've had so many injuries and so many nagging injuries, mm-hmm. kind of minor injuries, six-week, eight-week, not, not, nothing other than Danny Ings that's been uh, season-long. And D- Daniel Sturridge's inability to get back to fitness it's something Klopp is having to contend with. But as we've talked about before, I don't know that their results matter a whole lot this season. I think there might be an emphasis on getting through these cup competitions. They're in the final of the League Cup. There's every belief that they could make a deep run in Europa. They're continuing to go in FA Cup, although now they're going to have to go to the bowling ground, which is very difficult. But on the surface, I guess this is a good thing. One one other quick note about this. They play the league leaders, Leicester, on Tuesday and they didn't play their, their uh, first 11 in this match. So that's uh, a, a good thing because I was thinking 120 minutes on Tuesday in the League Cup semifinals plus penalties, 90 minutes against a, a good West Ham team at Anfield. You go to uh, uh, the King Power Stadium and you might get run off the pitch by a Leicester team that's top of the table for a reason and is also well-rested. Klopp made 10 changes to a starting lineup between the FA Cup semifinal against Stoke and then 
Saturday's match against West Ham. The only person in both lineups was Simone Mignolet, the goalkeeper. As long as he keeps doing that, then I think the number of games played statistic might end up sounding like a bit of an exaggeration. But if they go deeper in the FA Cup, there might be that temptation to start playing starters more. If they're also still alive during uh, Europa League at that time, it's going to become a little bit stress- stressful. But as you the said, the league Pontiac, may not matter then. Maybe you play the kids in the league. Yeah. Honestly, I, I, it's sacrilegious as that sounds. Yeah, it may depend on where they are in the league. If they slip down to eighth or ninth, maybe you go for some silverware and maybe you just uh, use the summer to make that charge back into Europe next year. Uh, Leicester is one team that is benefiting from all this. We talked about the lack of teams bowing out over the first two rounds of this competition that Premier League teams were in the FA Cup. Leicester is the only team competing for the title that has been eliminated. They also aren't involved in League Cup or Europa League. They only have their Premier League fixtures now. And as the other teams continue to rack up fixtures, maybe it won't matter, but it's not going to hurt Leicester to see them have to expend more resources. Let's talk about transfers before we go into the first break. We're entering the last days of the winter transfer window, which will close early this week. And a number of Moves have been made since the last time we came to you midweek. A young prospect from Manchester City bought this summer. Ennis Unal goes out on loan to NAC in the Eredivisie. Mike Williamson has moved to Wolverhampton Wanderers from Newcastle. Has been made permanent. Only £300,000 was the price that there. Sebastian Coates has left Sunderland on loan for Sporting Club in Portugal. His descent from huge prospect after Copa America a few years ago to now somebody that's bouncing around a little bit continues. And Patrick Bamford has found another home in the Premier League after returning to Chelsea from Crystal Palace after not getting enough playing time there. He's been loaned out to Man City. This, can I jump in on this one? This one's a Absolutely. little bit disappointing because we're hearing uh, rumors that Leicester City, who were leading the league and could use uh, more depth, might be in for Lorc Remy. Now, if Chelsea were to sell Remy to Leicester, what's their master plan with strikers if Bamford's been loaned out again. <laughs> I think a lot of people, and we'll talk about this in a little bit when we talk about Matt Miazga, are now becoming more and more interested in what Chelsea's master plan for all of their prospects are. So let's talk about that in a second. Uh, some other deals that maybe will have a bit more impact. This is one I took a bit of special interest in. Uh, a midfielder slash attacker from Bordeaux, Tunisian named Wabi Kankazi, moves from Bordeaux to Sunderland in what looks like a very Newcastle-esque move. You're getting a low-value attacker from League on, bringing him up north in England. Uh, and if it happened with Newcastle, you would say to yourself, boy, hasn't Newcastle made this move about eight times in the last two years? The difference here is that Sunderland doesn't have any players of this type. Uh, Kazi is a very skilled, smart player, not particularly quick or not slow. He's not particularly explosive or anything like that. He's just a good, solid player that you wouldn't mind having the ball needing to make a play. It's the type of player that Sunderland has been lacking, and I think this is a really, really good addition for for them, Kartik. Yeah, I agree. I, Big Stamp has been really searching deep uh, in continental football to find some guys to bring in. It's funny, Newcastle, which had been the very kind of foreign team in that part of the country, has now doubled down on English players in this window, going out and getting John Joe Shelby, Andros Townsend, and now really <laughs> going hard after uh, Saidi Berahino, so all English players. Sunderland has been very aggressive under Big Sam. This is similar to what he did at Bolton. At Bolton, he signed a lot of foreign players at, at a time when there weren't as many foreign uh, there were a lot, but not, not quite like today. Uh, and he's gone uh, hard into continental football during this window, has in fact, between Sunderland matches, been scouting himself, going to the continent, uh, watching players, t- talking to scouts, trying to get the deals done himself. I, I think he- he's counting on getting guys 
um, like Kazi in to save the team from relegation. He, he's made the determination that the players he inherited are not good enough. Mm-hmm. And all by all indications, all the data points we have, they're not. So he's pretty radically changing this team in the January window, which is risky, but they're going to go down if they don't do it. So I, I think he really had little choice. It wasn't an expensive buy either. I believe the total on this was something like £5 million. So in relative terms, in terms of the Premier League, what they normally expend, it wasn't that expensive. Uh, a couple of teams looking to shore up their striking options. Swansea looking for those goals that will keep them out of the championship has have brought in Alberto Paloshi from Chievo. And then Everton beating a couple of more prominent clubs to the signing of Lokomotiv Moscow's Senegalese strike. Umar Niasi, 24-25 years old there. In the Russian Premier League, he's been good for a goal, about a goal in every two games. A, a decent striker there, but uh, Kartik, somebody that Premier League fans are going to know a little bit more, is returning to the Premier League after uh, his time at QPR. Former Tottenham midfielder Sandro is going to be on loan with Tony Pulis and West Brom through the end of the season. <laughs> I mean, Pulis is just doubling down on uh, yeah. his type of players, and uh, when uh, you said Sandro was uh, returning to the Premier League, I was wondering if you were actually even going to give us the club because it was so predictable. <laughs> uh, Pulis. So Pulis, I guess, has decided this season. We saw some changes from him toward the end of his Stoke tenure. Uh, so the uh, efforts of trying to go with more quick wide players, Etherington, Kane, Jermaine Pennant. At Crystal Palace, he inherited a much more cosmopolitan squad and had to play to those that squad's strengths. And guys like Punchin and Velocity had good second halves of that season when Pulis went to Palace. Now at West Brom, we've seen him just double down on his type of player, his style of play, and gutting out results. So, yeah, if you want a, a holding midfielder, Sandro's a pretty good one uh, by Premier League standards, by especially by championship standards. And QPR will be happy to get him off their books for uh, the six-month period. But, my goodness, Pulis is not making any progressive changes to his squad, is he? No, he's he's playing to type right now. It's as if it's as if he's recognized his brand. And he's not going to run from it anymore. I, I guess that's admirable in one sense, but eventually there are going to be enough teams in the Premier League that are going to be able to uh, to ruin the best line on his resume. The idea that he's never gotten a, a team relegated. They're certainly playing. They're playing in a way to where if enough teams below them figure out their kind of magic formulas. I don't know what the ceiling is on this West Brom team. Like, if three or four teams below the baggies right now in the Premier League actually go on runs that we see teams go on at the end of seasons, they're going to be in trouble because the way that Tony Pulis has constructed this squad, they they might be at their ceiling right now. As bad as they are, as boring as they are, the best case scenario for them is Solomon Rondon finds some goals. And I don't know the way they're playing that he really does that that many opportunities being created behind him. Uh, Kartik, you and Nipun talked about Alexandra Pato signing for Chelsea midweek. That has actually gone through. It's official. He's going to be on low for Corinthians for the rest of the season. But Chelsea was also in the other major news of the week, uh, transfer news of the week. At least it's major news over here. New York Red Bull central defender, 20-year-old Matt Miazga, somebody who has broken into the senior national team for the United States, left the U.S.'s camp in Southern California this week, flew to England, signed on a 3.5 million pound move 
going to be moving to the Premier League in Chelsea. This is one of the more prominent moves in U.S. national team history. Chelsea is one of the seven, eight most prestigious clubs in the world. And while we've seen the Manchester Uniteds or the Borussia Dortmunds come over here and pluck young players and bring them over to their academy, we rarely see a senior-level player make this kind of move, Kartik. And while this isn't a blockbuster multi-million, I guess technically it is multi-million, but it's not an eight-digit deal. This is somebody prospecting on a young player. This this is still a very significant move for the U.S., for the MLS's academy system, and for Miazga himself. It's highly significant. This is a player, uh, he's a New Jersey native, he came through Red Bull's academy. MLS's academy structure is new. MLS teams have set up their academies in the last five to seven years. Actually, Red Bull, along with Dallas, uh, one of the uh, one of the other where the teams had originally set up academies. Dallas actually has a former academy player who spent nine months with them, then went back to Argentina, Funes Mori, who's been playing quite well for Everton. So that's another former MLS academy player. They're now two in the Premier League. Although Funes Mori, as I said, only spent nine months in Dallas Academy and really became a good player when he moved back to Argentina. Miazka is the first guy to really come through an academy, become an MLS designated homegrown player, not designated player. I'm sorry. With MLS, there are all these terms. You can't even use your normal vocabulary. A, uh, a, a status homegrown player and then moved on to a, a big club in the Premier League. I can also tell you, based on what, uh, some of the reporting I've done and, and reports I've seen elsewhere, both Manchester City and Leicester City, the top two clubs in the Premier League right now, were interested in Miazga, but they were looking at him over the summer. Wow. So Chelsea came in before those two clubs did. Although, Given Leicester's uh, lack of depth on the back line, let's say an injury to Wes Morgan or Robert Huth took place, maybe they could have used him this season. But he's not, he's not displacing either two guys uh, now. So maybe Leicester was thinking, summer, we, uh, we're going to be in Europe next season. We need to start building up for, for that eventuality. So he goes to Chelsea. This is a great deal for the United States. The way I would describe Miazga, and you've watched as much of him as I have, uh, Richard, and you've seen him in person as well. I've seen him in person a few times now. He's a good ball-playing defender, which is something Chelsea yeah. has not had since David Luiz, or central defender since David Luiz moved to PSG. A guy who's comfortable with the ball at his feet. His clearances tend to be pretty good. Now, where I think it's a bit of a problem in the Premier League is I don't see him as a strong, physical, ball-winning central defender. And... That concerns me about a move to any Premier League club, especially Chelsea, which has had the likes of John Terry, who have been as good at that as anyone in the history of this league. Mm-hmm. For somebody that's as big as he is, he's six four. What Premier League fans are going, what's going to stand out to Premier League fans is he doesn't look particularly strong. Uh, he's not somebody that's going going to win those aerial battles like people will automatically assume anybody that big will. I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna shy away from them. He's not gonna be terrible, but he's not gonna be the dominant presence that people expect. And then his actual defending, he defends like an inexperienced twenty year old sometimes, and that's just part of the process. And that's part of why he only costs three point five million pounds. But I guess one. I guess it's kind of a lazy comparison, Kartik, but it is one that will at least give people some idea of what Chelsea is getting. Is there, there are a lot of John Stones parallels here um, as far as the skill he has on the ball, as far as his, his, his athleticism, as far as just the raw state of his game, and as far as the potential is concerned. I don't think that he has the the high end that John Stone do, Stones does. I mean, Stones possibly moves this summer for 50 million pounds. I don't think Matt, Matt Miazga will ever command that price. But when you're talking about the style of player, I don't think it's unfair to think that he's of that mold. Yeah, and I, I would actually mention, you mentioned Stones. That's absolutely right. And he's a lot like Louise. Louise wasn't a good yeah. uh, one-on-one defender, but he's of that mold. Now, Chelsea, I think, 
in their evolution under managers like Andre Villas-Boas and, and Carlo Ancelotti tried to get that style player mm. and wanted that kind of player uh, pairing with John Terry. What has ended up happening since is that we've seen a situation where jo- Jose Mourinho came back to the club and doubled down. And to him, the, the partnership of Cahill, uh, a guy like Cahill and, and Terry was, was essential. And then you wanted to get a guy like Kurt Zuma, who's quick, who's faster, who, but who's equally strong and not very good on the ball into that team. So I think it, it may speak to Chelsea's desire to change stylistically. Does that give us a hint as to who the next manager will be at Chelsea? Uh, could it be uh, Sparky, Mark Hughes? That's been rumored this week. I, I don't mm. think it will be. But stylistically, this is the kind of player that Hughes would sign and the kind of player that Tony Pulis or Jose Mourinho would not. And of course, Kartik, there is an obvious connection, obvious to us, but certainly not <laughs> obvious to the rest of the world, a connection between Miazga and Sparky, is, as weird as that sounds. Yes, yeah, so his agent is Ryan Nelson, who played for Sparky both at QPR and at uh, Toronto, uh, excuse me, at QPR and Blackburn. And uh, Nelson works with Kia Jarabshin, who is also Mark Hughes's advisor. And that's probably how uh, Ryan Nelson got to know uh, Kia Jarabshin was through Sparky. So that is another con- connection to Sparky. And who knows? That with, with all those connections, maybe Sparky is in fact talking to Chelsea, or is he at least on Chelsea's radar. Uh, you would think some, Simeone is the leading candidate for that, but Simeone might be looking at the Chelsea situation saying, huh, maybe I'll wait for Manchester United or for uh, <laughs> another job to come open. Mm. After this weekend, though, maybe Diego Simeone will be trying to get out of Spain quickly, ending his match against Barcelona with nine uh. men. We're going to talk about that match after the break. We're going to talk about what's going on in Germany. But for most of you, the most important part of the next segment will be us breaking down the midweek action of the Premier League, the, 29th round, the 24th round of the season, the marquee matchup there being Liverpool's visit to Leicester. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back to the show. There was no action in the Premier League this weekend, but in Spain, arguably the most important game in the table for the rest of the season took place. It's not the most important game culturally. There's another Clasico to go in Spain this year. But Atletico Madrid and Barcelona met for the second time this season. Barcelona having already won at the Vicente Calderon earlier this year. And on Saturday, Atletico Madrid gave notice early that they were going to take those three points back. Gabi with an early goal, giving Atleti a 1-0 lead at Barcelona's home ground. Unfortunately, as the first half went on, Kartik, this game tilted drastically towards Barcelona. A great defensive effort for Atletico, their customary great defensive effort, was broken apart by a Barcelona team that really looked unstoppable, particularly on their first goal. Second goal, maybe one of the weaker goals Atletico has let in all year. But by the time this game reached halftime 2-1, Atletico had also lost a man after Felipe Luis went studs up into Lionel Messi's knee. Second half, they lose Diego Godin. Ends up finishing 2-1. Barcelona is three points clear at the top of Spain. Yeah, and they've still got that match in hand. So this is... uh... A tough one, I think, for people who want to see a competitive race in, in, in the league. The uh, the two sending offs uh, did it letting in. They have a, a situation, and, and I, I hate to get into this argument. I don't want to get into a philosophical argument with Barca fans and with people who enjoy beautiful football. But I, I, I 
caught some flack yesterday for saying what else is Letty supposed to do. And Diego Simeone, now I know that they've in some ways become characters for themselves. They have guys sent off in, in these games uh, typically. And we even saw in the second leg last year against Real Madrid after they had held so well against them in both the league and the Champions League uh, up to that point that they that they at some point the dam breaks. And we saw it in the Champions League final. But I'm not quite sure what else Atleti is supposed to do when they play Barcelona or Real Madrid. And, and I know philosophically people say, well, just play football and <laughs> and try and try. And so you're supposed to unilaterally disarm. What? Well, you're, you're done telling me. But it's also the old debate. Why isn't what Simeone doing football? Because when I looked at what they did yesterday, you know, Simeone has been trying to play two strikers a lot this year, sometimes three strikers, to accommodate the purchases they made this offseason he went to one striker in this game he started Griezmann up top Ferreira Carrasco behind him and it was obviously a more defensive approach but when you see the way that he sets up his team when you see the passing angles that he wants his team to cut down on Carrasco a lot of the time was spending his time cutting off Busquets from the flanks which is a which is a big part for Barcelona's team it might have actually cost them on the second goal because of Dani Alves playing more direct to Luis Suarez without having Busquets as an outlet back into the middle and you see the intensity that Atleti play with, which is unmatched by any team in the world. It's like they're constantly doing the pressing that Klopp's teams do in bursts. I don't know what's not beautiful about that. It's as if we just don't have an aesthetic, Kartik, where we can ever appreciate defending on any level. Because if we could, we would appreciate what Atletico is doing. Right, I think we would appreciate it. And I think part of it is Barcelona has a very good... uh, uh, control of, I, I don't want to say control, but they have uh, a lot of sympathy in the press for various reasons, both uh, <laughs> football-wise and politically. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you play this way against Barcelona, and you repeatedly play this way against Barcelona, because Atleti has been playing this way against Barcelona now for several seasons. Uh, going back to when Kiki Sanchez-Flores was their manager, so it's been five, six seasons of this, they, there's just this narrative that's developed that, well, they're, they're, they're just negative, they're brutalizing their opposition, and this whole narrative about Atleti, people who don't watch Atleti regularly are giving me this narrative about how they're this awful thing for football. And I, I just, I don't have any time for that. I don't either because they don't play, or at least you don't you don't see the same fouls in every Atletico game. You have to give Barcelona some credit. Barcelona's skill, Barcelona's speed, Barcelona's talent brought a lot of that out of Atletico. You saw some of the fouls that Juan Fran made in this game. He wasn't going in dirty. He was cleaning some people out because he was playing hard. And Barcelona was just that elusive. Maybe there is a mentality difference. Maybe they do try to send a message. But to paint Atletico with this big, broad brush based on the one Atletico game that people are more likely to see than other ones, I I think it's foolish. I I like watching Atletico play probably more than 99% of teams in the world. I, I can watch them every game. I watch them more than any other in Spain. I'll admit that their games are the ones I watch, and I don't really watch. Uh, I shouldn't be saying that on this podcast. I don't really watch Barcelona or Real Madrid in their domestic league very much, honestly. But I watch I, anytime Atleti's on and I'm around, I watch them. So mm. I watch much more than those other two teams in, in, in the domestic league, at least. Spain's table right now has Barcelona clear at the top, three points clear of Atletico Madrid, still with a game at hand after their win this weekend at the Camp Nou. Atletico in second place with 48. Real Madrid one point back on 47 after their drubbing of Espanyol this weekend. And the Villarreal still staying within distance of Real Madrid. Fourth place, 44 points. Uh, let's go to the Bundesliga Kartik. I know you watched the Borussia Dortmund match this weekend. Two to nothing victory. Two late goals by Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. This match is going to be remembered on this side of the pond for another reason though. 
Yeah, the American Wonder Kid. I think the the kid, and and we, we fall in love with young American players, and and we're probably worth. We're looking for that next great thing, and and we haven't ha- ever had that world class player. But Christian Pulisic, uh, young young man from Pennsylvania, he's only seventeen. He turned seventeen in September. He made the decision to to try his luck, go to uh, Borussia Dortmund on trial last. Uh, did very well. Made their U seventeen squad. Was a key key player for the United States. Uh, in in a number of youth internationals, and now has uh, injuries. Uh, we saw Ramos start yesterday for Borussia Dortmund. Due to injuries, has made the bench for Borussia Dortmund the last two, two matches, and has come into the match and was was inserted in the 68th minute with the score nil nil against Ingolstadt on Saturday. Now think about this: we can't even get Americans, uh, um, American veteran players who are regulars on the senior national team game time at places like Sunderland and places like. Aston Villa or or uh, clubs like uh, Eintracht Frankfurt in in Timothy Chandler's case, and we've got a few guys. John Brooks is playing at Hertha Berlin at a very high level. Uh, Fabian Johnson's been great for Munchen Gladbach. I, I think Jeff Cameron has played pretty well for Stoke, although he's been moving around the pitch. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And we've now got a kid playing at seven, getting game time with a game on the line at one of the ten best world mm-hmm. right now. Club yeah. team. I, it's just amazing. When he entered the game, it, it was nil-nil. Like you said, game was on the line. They didn't just insert him because they could. They entered him because they felt he would help deliver him three points. And I think that's great. Uh, something that we talked about on Twitter a little bit that I do want to talk about here. You know, over the last two weeks, we've talked about three, or the world really, um, the soccer world, has talked about three main U.S. prospects here. Jordan Morris, covered that a, a lot on the site. Uh, Miazga, which we have also covered a lot on the site, and then Pulisic, which we've not covered at all on this podcast or the site. And that's kind of the order that people have given their attention to these prospects. Jordan Morris, big 48-point font at the top of the page. Miazga getting a, the column, the sidebar. And then Pulisic, you have to flip to the back page. That's ass backwards. It should be the other way. Pulisic is doing something that no right. American prospect has ever done. Miazga is a year younger and has a year and a half pro experience on Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris's big thing is that he jumped, he got into the senior national team pool as a college player and he deserves attention for that. But if Jordan Morris wasn't linked with the, the MLS team that has the biggest fan base in the country and if he didn't become this kind of, I don't even know what to call it. He, he's this hat that MLS fans have come to hang on. He's this litmus test for the league for no justifiable reason. It doesn't have anything to do with him as a player, so to speak. It's these cultural things. And what we really should be doing as a culture is looking at the Pulisic's more than the Morris's. He is four years older than Pulisic. Pulisic has now made a, his professional debut in a very, very big game. Uh, for the team that's run, uh, second in the Bundesliga, that is going to qualify for the UEFA Champions League at the age of 17, Jordan Moore still hasn't played a professional club football match. He still hasn't played a, 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 a actual official game. Uh, he will on March 6th when uh, MLS kicks off, or we presume he will. Uh, he, it, it's it's confounding to me. Uh, he's a player that fits a need, a position that the uh, U.S. Uh, is, is weak at, which is the striker position. The U.S. has more midfield options, not necessarily good midfield options, but more midfield options. Certainly has more defensive options, which is why it took Miazga. And also, I have to say with Miazga, uh, the United States puts a, an emphasis on doing well in youth. So Miazga was kept on the U-20 squad mm-hmm. and the U-23 squad at critical times for the senior national team because the thought was it's better for Miazga to anchor the defense at the U-20 World Cup, which he did, and he did quite well. 
And I think that's where he caught Chelsea's eye was at that U20 World Cup, as well as uh, playing United States Olympic qualifying team in a uh, in an in Olympic qualifying when he could have been playing for the senior national team. So, but uh, because of the senior national team call-ups, we've, we've given Morris uh, increased importance. And you mentioned the Seattle factor. I don't want to get too deep into that. Seattle has the largest fan base in, in Major League Soccer. They have the most vocal fan base in Major League Soccer. They also have perhaps the biggest media footprint uh, outside of Los Angeles in the American soccer media landscape. Now, there are a lot of people like you and I that cover European football that are in various points parts in the country. But if you want to look at people who actually cover U.S. soccer closely, Seattle and Los Angeles, the two kind of uh, maybe New York also, but New York, they're, they're, uh, it's more dispersed. And there's um, a sense that, at least from where I sit, that 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 narrative was developed a lot by Seattle journalists and Seattle-based writers who cover Major League Soccer. And so it's this great litmus test. They've, they've, uh, they've signed Jordan Morris. We'll see if the kid develops. He's 21. He's already behind the development curve, uh, if, if you look at it that way. And, and he's going to be stuck in Major League Soccer until he's at least 23 or 24. And then you've got Miazga over the Chelsea at 20. You've got Pulisic over to... A Borussia Dortmund at 16 makes his full debut mm-hmm. at 17. Um, and you have Cameron, Cameron Carter's Vickers at 18 that seems to be on the cusp of the Spurs senior team, too. So Yeah, uh, in, in Cameron Carter Vickers' case, I, I think there's um, some some issues development-wise. I, I watched him in that in, in a uh, U21 game against Chelsea, and he still makes some mistakes, but you can see the raw talent. Yeah. And he's getting, he's getting games at that level, and he's a guy that they're very high on. So that's another guy who's following another path. So we celebrate the path of guys who, uh, who sign in Major League Soccer, uh, but we should be celebrating these other paths, including Miazga, who used Major League Soccer to his benefit uh, with the academy system and then playing a year and a half as a uh, full first-teamer with the New York Red Bulls. And I think that is uh, a much better story for Major League Soccer and growing the footprint and the relevance of Major League Soccer in this global game than Jordan Morris, in my opinion. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think to Jordan Morris has given every indication to believe that he is going to be, or at least has the talent, to be a major contributor. I think this, like you said, just speaks to the power of the Seattle fans. They're hungry for coverage of the things that they like, and I don't, I don't think that's a negative, but I think for other people looking in on this, the hype around Jordan Morris doesn't mean that he's a better prospect than these other people we're talking about. In fact, of the four people that we mentioned, I'd probably put him number four or very close to number three with Miazga. But unfortunately, when I've talked to casual fans of uh, uh, of U.S. soccer who don't follow MLS, and I mentioned Miazga and I mentioned Jordan Morris, they all knew who Jordan Morris was and they didn't know who Miazga was. I mean, these are people who watch Ooh. American sports and then they watch the Premier League. And they're like, who's this guy going to Chelsea? And these were the same people uh, who were uh, unhappy two weeks ago that uh, Jordan Morris, who they had been following, signed in uh, MLS instead of signing with Werner Bremen. Uh, and and for those people now, they're not going to follow Morris as closely as they would have if he had been at Bremen. But I know several people who are like that, who just follow the Premier League and the Bundesliga yeah. or whatever, and, and, and then watch the NFL and the NBA. They don't watch Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. So Miazka kind of caught them by surprise that the player good enough in Major League Soccer that is American, that could uh, uh, attract the interest from Chelsea. And as I mentioned earlier, attracted, it was attracting interest of Manchester City and Leicester City also, but they were looking to buy him in the summer. His MLS contract, by the way, was expiring next year. Mm. You know, after spending a year living in down where you do, Kartik, I am never going to underestimate certain regions of the country, their ability to just not care about Major League Soccer. Maybe that'll change when Beckham <laughs> lands there, but people should realize there are some 
deeply soccer-loving parts of this country. Uh, South Florida, San Diego, two places I've lived in, to be specific, that love soccer as much as any place in this country that just do not care about Major League Soccer at all. All right, Kartik, let's look towards midweek. Let's talk about round 24. Let's count down from 10 to 1 the matches of this week from the matches we think you should be most interested in to the matches we think everybody are going to be most interested, least interested to most interested. Uh, Starting at number 10, West Brom versus Swansea City. These are two teams that have struggled for goals this season. Both teams now have some attacking talent. Swansea having brought in Pelosi midweek. Swansea has actually been on a bit of an uptick too, obviously having made some changes to their coaching staff over the last two weeks. Still, this is a West Brom game car tick. I can't recommend people watch this one. No, I'm not interested in this game, and I'm hoping Swansea take the three points and put West Brom further in the relegation battle. Uh, number nine, Crystal Palace and Bournemouth. Yeah, this is a little bit more interesting. Uh, Bournemouth has been gutting out some results, and, and they've been on a bit of an uptick. And they're obviously now into the fifth round of the FA Cup, uh, Derby with Port Pompey. Ironically enough, six seasons ago, five seasons ago, Pompey was a top-flight team. Bournemouth was a fourth uh, division team. Mm. Uh, this FA Cup, uh, two kind of localized rivals, reversed uh, situation. Similar financial histories. Yeah, similar financial histories. Thank you. Uh, Palace, is, uh, they've now won two in the FA Cup uh, back-to-back against Premier League opposition. But they're... Uh, Performance actually in league games has been getting worse and worse and worse. So this is an opportunity maybe for Bournemouth to get uh, some points at uh, Selhurst Park. And keep in mind that their um, their uptick Bournemouth began with a draw against Palace uh, at, at home last month. Uh, one one other note, Emmanuel Adebayor has signed on a free for Palace. I don't think we've mentioned that. Yeah, and that's going to be a big thing. Palace has not scored a goal on their own volition for the last six Premier League matches. They need somebody to step in there. Wor- worthwhile gamble for Pardew, right? Absolutely. It's a free- Oh, probably a worthwhile gamble for most of the league. He just happens to be going to Crystal Palace. Uh, number eight, Everton versus Newcastle. A lot of skill on display in this game. Two very talented teams, Kartik, but two teams that are probably underperforming their talent levels. Yeah, both are underperforming, and we might say draw here. I think the news is really tightening on Roberto Martinez, so he needs results soon. Newcastle has made these two moves for uh, Townsend and Shelby. They are looking to get... Uh, to get Berahino in before the window. Uh, we'll know, obviously, by the time this match kicks off, they do. West Brom, again, being stubborn. Uh, Newcastle has, has offered in cash money up front, 20, 23 or 24 million, I saw, rejected by West Brom. So I, I don't know what West Brom's doing. They're holding the, the kid hostage. We've talked about this before. But if Newcastle doesn't get Berahino, I think they've got some concerns. I mean, I, I assumed in this window they would get a striker, and that would be the right guy that's on the market. But maybe yeah. they have to look elsewhere in the next day. Uh, to get someone. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a really good fit there, and it's it's turning somewhat sad to see what's going on with Seydou Barahino there. A mess of his own making a little bit, but it seems like pure stubbornness on West Brom's part. Uh, number seven on our list, West Ham versus Aston Villa. West Ham consistently giving us good performances, and lately, Aston Villa's showing signs of life, too. This is a big ask for Remy Gard's revolution there. Yeah, I, I think we're Again, as uh, Ahmed Youssef meant to us last week, I think uh, Aston Villa now is playing for Remy Gard's uh, shop window job. They played better. They were on a five-game unbeaten until yesterday's loss in all cup to uh, Manchester City. I think they'll play well here, but West Ham, 
I will have a little too much for that. Number six match on this list, another good one. This is going to be a highly competitive one. Watford versus Chelsea. Chelsea, we saw their offense come to life this weekend. Aiden Hazard scoring his first goal for the Blues in nine months. Watford got back into the win column last week. You would have to give make them the slight favorites in this one. Yeah, Watford really should have beaten Chelsea in Goose Heating's first match last month. And this is a bit of a local derby. Watford now... Uh, considers themselves a London club. I, I believe they might even be on the same underground line as close as the Stamford Bridge. So uh, they are. This this is it. This is a bit of a local derby, and I I think Watford, just based on the the uh, the surface of what we see, they should win this match. But it seems like Chelsea. There are some positive signs, and so I'll say draw here. Yeah, they're at least solidifying. Draw feels right in this one, with Watford waning a little bit, just getting back into the win column after three straight, or I believe it was three straight losses. It might have been four straight losses. But either way, they're just starting to get back on track. Uh, number five on this list is pretty much here because there's a title contender in this game. Sunderland has looked better at times under Sam Allardyce, but they're still in the bottom three. Manchester City will be hoping to get full points in this one. Uh, easier said than done. Yeah, and in both of Manchester City's title-winning seasons, they have dropped points against Sunderland. In, in fact, uh, it, it, excuse me, in, in um, both the Manchester City's title-winning seasons, Sunderland have taken have been the only two, uh, the only team to take four points off of Manchester City in the league both times. Uh, actually, the second time Manchester City won the title, Chelsea took all six points, but Sunderland took four points. Only team in, in uh, 11-12, most points, and then uh, only team besides Chelsea to get two results against uh, against Manchester City the next time. Now, City, given that history, might want to lose, drop this game, but I think this is a very different Premier League, mm-hmm. right? So we're looking at a situation where uh, I think we're going to uh, probably see Manchester win this as Sunderland is integrating all these new parts at the end of the January window. Uh, Another note, Manchester City had lost four in a row, uh, four straight league games at Sunderland prior to last season. Again, another indication that this has been a bogey team for Manchester City. And as I said, the only team to take points off of Manchester City at Eastlands in both of their title winning seasons. Norwich versus Tottenham. Tottenham going to a Norwich team that has struggled but has made a couple of big purchases of late. Slowly they're getting pulled back into the relegation battle. Tottenham going in the other direction, arguably the form side in the Premier League. And in that way, this is a good test for their title ambitions. They have some points to make up on Leicester. They need to get three points out of these games lest they continue their drawing ways and continue to fall back. Whereas Norwich, they need to take advantage of these home games to start pulling themselves away from that drop. Yeah, this seems. This feels like the kind of game Spurs would lose if they're going to fall out of the title race. Doesn't yeah, it? it feels like it really does feel like a litmus test of sorts. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's the term I was going to use. This is a litmus test game, so I think we'll have a lot to talk about based on the result of this match for Spurs, and then of course for uh, Norwich. I think Norwich has played well enough to not be to be pulling away from this drop zone, but they haven't. And now they they made some interesting signings. Uh, maybe most interesting, Stephen Naismith coming over from Everton. So. They need to start winning some of these games, getting points. Top three games we're going to slow down a little bit, spend some more time talking about. The first was one that I couldn't wrap my head around putting them in these top three, but it is Manchester United, and they are hosting a Stoke team people are very excited about. But given the the dour nature of these teams' attacks, Kartik, one, I can't get excited about this game. And two, I just see this ending in a nil-nil unless some kind of set piece or penalty freakery happens. Yeah, and Stoke has had a good record the last few weeks against Manchester United. I, I see this being a nil-nil or a 1-1, honestly. And I think United has this little bit of a feel-good factor in, in the sense that they they got past Derby. I, a lot of people 
didn't see that as an expected result. Uh, they haven't been paying too close to attention to the championship the last few weeks where Darby has tailed off. That's true. I, I thought Darby was still good. Yeah, and they and in reality, Darby in, in a massive funk, so it was the right time to play them. But it's credit to them. Still went to Pride Park, got, got the result. No replay. The thinking was that they would probably need a replay at best to get through that round. So there's a bit of a feel-good factor, but the most recent Premier League result was that loss at Old Trafford to Southampton. I... I just think that they're in a position where they will probably uh, draw this match and it'll be a dour draw. On Stoke's side, we know how it works with this uh, so-called new wave Stoke, Stoke Alona of, of uh, Sparky, where they, 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 they do look like Barcelona one match and then they're terrible. Mm-hmm. And they were terrible against Leicester. They, they lost 3-0. They could have lost 6-7-8-0. It, it was that one-sided. And so I think they'll probably play well in this game. So I'm going to tip it for a draw. I'm going to apologize to everybody because I want to talk about Stoke a little bit more. And the reason I keep harping on Stoke is probably my experience as an editor uh, running sites. And I know how easy it is to not actually pay attention to the games and fall in love with a narrative, particularly if it's a romantic one, about a team that was so bad uh, as far as their playing style is concerned. And now they look so great. And there are definitely times where if Stoke doesn't look great, it looks like they're at least trying to play great. And I definitely think you have to give them credit for that. But there are some things we have to keep in mind. Uh, After this weekend's game, there are over 560 minutes against top flight opposition where they haven't scored a goal unless you count the goal against Liverpool where Zukic was offside. That's a huge amount of time. They've only scored 24 goals in 23 Premier League games. And if you take out the goals where they've had a man advantage, they're scoring less than a goal per 90 minutes, 11 on 11. They're 16th in the league in shots per game, and they're holding less than 50% of the ball. There's no basis for this Stoke narrative, this beautiful Stoke narrative. There is basis for thinking they want to play that way, though. And I think part of the reason I keep coming back to it, Kartik, is it strikes me as very, very lazy. And if I say this as somebody that if I were an editor, I would think myself lazy for accepting a pitch or having one of my writers write about this. If two weeks later I then looked at these numbers, I would just be embarrassed by it. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think that that's, uh, that's a really good point because my, my sense is that Stoke wants to play a certain way, but at times they still have to revert to yeah. And they have such a mishmash of players. They have players inherited from uh, from Pulis, and then they have guys that decide to try and evolve the style that don't necessarily correspond with the way you have to play at times in the Premier League. It, uh, it doesn't look good at times. And so now we have this inconsistency. And as I said earlier, you have one game where they're really on and then one game where they're really off. So I think this will be a game where they're on and they probably get a goal, maybe get two goals, and, and they get a draw at worst. Hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, tendency to revert happens the second they hit the final third. They just haven't developed enough of an identity to really put together those movements or to read each other well enough to break down a defense once they have that defensive shape set up in front of their goal. And hopefully that'll come in time. And hopefully Stoke City sticks with this. Of course, if they lose Mark Hughes this summer, maybe they'll have another change, of course. Uh, Let's talk about the next game on our list, the second one, Arsenal versus Southampton. We've talked about Arsenal so much on this show. Listeners don't need any context for the third-place team in the league right now. Southampton, on the other hand, three wins in a row. They're up to eighth in the league. Their plus-eight goal difference is actually tied for fifth-best in the league. They've only allowed 24 goals in 23 games. Kartik, it seems like they've weathered the storm. And if they have weathered the storm, if they're closer to the team that we saw through most of last year, this is going to be a very difficult match for Arsenal. Yeah, it's going to be a very difficult match. The question is, has Southampton actually turned the corner or have they just found a yeah. little bit of... I don't know. Form? Yeah, what yeah, do you think? They, 
I'm not sure either. I think we'll know after this game. If they have turned the corner, they're going to get a result, whether it's a draw, whether it's a 1-1 draw, a nil-nil draw, or uh, maybe they're going to win 1-0. Because defensively, they they seem to have come back together. But there were times this season where they looked so poor defensively, and their movement wasn't uh, wasn't good enough. Uh, Now they've also got... Uh, Charlie Austin potentially is a striker playing against uh, with murder soccer suspended against Gabrielle and uh, Kishelny as as the center backs. I, I like that matchup for Southampton. So uh, Saito Mane has been playing very well. You see now why Southampton, even though they've sold all these other players, why they refuse to sell him. Wanyama, as of this point, has not been sold yet. Uh, maybe he, he gets sold to Arsenal tomorrow and he just doesn't play in this game. Uh, but if he doesn't get sold... That's another guy that that's beginning to play a little better, and I think uh, you're you're looking at a, a real possibility for Southampton to take points. And there's nothing in Arsenal's performances recently, including the Burnley game in the uh, FA Cup, that makes me think Arsenal is is putting this this bad spell behind them. Now, obviously, we talk about Sanchez getting back, and that Welbeck is close to a return. Coughlin is back, but again, those doubts about Arsenal are beginning to creep in. So I think they're going to they're probably going to struggle in this game for everything that has gone right for arsenal in terms of the lack of quality at the top of the premier league this year it is extremely telling to me that they're in third place right now so much has happened in arsenal's favor united hasn't rebounded chelsea is a disaster manchester city is performing below expectations even leicester that has been the best team in the league thus far hasn't found the consistency to take advantage of all those situations and spurs are still in their growth phase if you had said all that at the beginning of the year you'd say this is arsenal's year they're gonna do it the pavement is clear for them to win a title they're in third place Now, I'm still putting them number one on my list as far as end of the season, the team that I think is going to win this title. But the idea that they've shaken their ghosts of the past are refuted by where they come into this weekend at. They're three points behind the leaders. I keep going back to the idea that we said on other shows, Kartik, that Vincent Kompany is the most important player in the Premier League. The difference between City's defense when he's there and not is enough to decide the title. And maybe that's the case. But... Metsut also, if he's not the most important player in the Premier League, he's probably the second because when he is performing at his best, when he's performing as a player that looks like a future Ballon d'Or contender, then Arsenal is the best team in this league. And when they're not, they just don't have anybody else that's able to step up. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. I mean, that's uh, what we've seen when Ozil has been injured or has dipped in form. And he was playing out of his mind for several months this season and has had a little bit of a dip recently. We have all these concerns about Arsenal and they're, they don't have that creative spark. They don't have that kind of probing passing ability coming from other, other points on midfield. Now, maybe the guy who provide that, provide some cover there is, is Tomas Rosicki, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, but Rosicki now is, uh, you know, he's been on Arsenal 10 season with the team. That's kind of cool and, to think about. That is kind of cool. Uh, and obviously for Dortmund before that. So he's all, he's been at big clubs this whole time, but, I'm not quite sure he's a uh, he is quite the player yeah. that uh, can give you uh, that can spell you for long enough in in that situation to where uh, he can he can offset any drop in form from uh, Ozil and what we're finding is that there's not a whole lot else to say about that in terms of uh, in terms of Arsenal that they in spite of all their depth and all the quality players they have and. Alexis Sanchez uh, being out of the lineup that time, uh, during that period of time, it seems they go as Mesut Ozil goes, which might explain why they were they fell away in the title race two seasons ago and were never in that race last season. Now they're very much squarely in the title race, and he's found a little bit of a dip, and no 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 fault of his own because I think he was just playing at a uh, out of the world level, and they've had a dip as well. 
hmm. because of it. Arsenal is now fifth in the league of goals scored. I don't think many people realize that. I didn't realize that until researching for today's show. And they're fourth in goal difference. Those aren't really numbers that you associate with a, a team that not only has its stylistic preferences, but the goal difference, too, is something that uh, four, three other teams have passed them at this point. Right, and Spurs having a better goal difference than Arsenal hasn't happened, as far as I remember. Because even when Spurs were close to Arsenal in terms of uh, points in previous years, and, and they were fighting for fourth or they were fighting for whatever position, fighting for third one in Chelsea in the Champions League that year, uh, Arsenal consistently was, was getting better score lines than they were. So this is uh, that's a very interesting development. Spurs are actually plus six on Arsenal, I believe. Plus six or plus seven. Yeah, plus seven. They're tied with Manchester City for the best goal def- difference in the league, and of course Spurs have the best defense of the league. And Kartik, one of the teams that does have the better goal difference than Arsenal right now, Leicester City league leading, league leading by three points on Manchester City and Arsenal. Uh, they're hosting Liverpool this weekend. Uh, one thing that I heard you and Nipun talk about, and I talked about with Nipun uh, in another place, was the viability of Leicester City as a title contender. And one thing that we mentioned off the air a couple of weeks ago when we were doing our show, I think bears repeating here, we ask ourselves, is Leicester a legitimate title contender? Can they keep this up? We're 23 weeks into this season. We only have 15 games left, and they're three points clear. They're title contenders, period. No matter whether you think they're a good team or not, anybody in that situation is a title contender. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think we can even have this discussion anymore. It's, it's, uh, it's comical that we're having this discussion. It's, they're in a position where they have proven through every single predicted swoon that was coming that they could survive. And they have had their wobbles. They have had their swoons already. And they've come out uh, on the other end still in the top four. And now they're back at top of the table. So uh, with Arsenal's recent uh, poor performance, I, I, I don't think we can have this conversation again. And, and quite honestly, the next three matches are their, their three mo- maybe their three most difficult matches for the rest of the season. And if they come through that and they're still there or thereabouts, mm-hmm. you have to talk about them. Even if they fall behind Arsenal and Manchester City in the next uh, uh, 10 days, in, in the next two weeks, you're going to have to still talk about them because they, they have an easier run in. So maybe we can make that the context for this discussion because this Liverpool match doesn't seem to be existing in isolation. Leicester then has to go to Manchester City and they have to go to Arsenal. They dropped points at home to both of those teams earlier this year, although in drastically different ways. Arsenal went to King Power 1-5-2, really gave people some ammunition to think that Leicester was not going to stick around. Whereas Manchester City went to the King Power Stadium last month, played with only one striker, seemed content to get a nil-nil draw, and got that nil-nil draw. So with that in mind, you look over these three games, the Liverpool game, not only because it's at home but because it's against Liverpool looks like the most winnable but in that sense it's also the riskiest because if they get this three match stretch off onto a bad note it really could kind of be the start of what everybody's waiting for right Liverpool's the other team that beat them this season beside uh, Arsenal. Arsenal right when they lost to Liverpool last month at Liverpool, the thought was, okay, here we go. When, and I think people had expected that, that swoon to start before when they went to Everton the previous week and they beat right. Everton 3-2 they beat Everton three two at Goodison, another indication of the, the fragile defense of Roberto Martinez's side. But So then they, they, they expected the came was going to come, and it, it never came. They drew with uh, Manchester City, as you mentioned, which was a good point for them, good point for both teams. They drew with Bournemouth in a game where Riyad Mahrez missed a penalty, and then they found... Uh, they, they started winning games. I, I think that this may be psychologically for them. It's a game where they're going to want to get at least a draw 
because they've lost to Liverpool previously. But if they get a draw in this match, they're still uh, top of the table going into that clash against Manchester City on uh, the following Saturday. I really believe, and I've said this now a couple of times, I've even written an article about it on another site, that I believe that uh, Claudio Ranieri is going to insert another midfielder, whether it's uh, uh, it could it could be uh, Matty James, it could be Gorkhan Inler, it could be anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the... Um, no, it could be Andy King, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in, in the games at Arsenal and at Manchester City, I he's agree. going to I agree. Uh, choke down the play, go with Vardy as a single striker, and uh, I can see them getting results in one or both of those matches. And again, if they if they get draws, okay, if they get, let's say they get draws in all three games and they're on 50 points, and uh, in the same period, Arsenal takes seven points and Manchester City takes seven points, and they're both ahead of Leicester entering that uh that the, the the stretch of games after that, I think it's advantage Leicester in the title race because they've survived that stretch and they've got the much easier run in. So, uh, I, I only way I'm thinking Leicester falls out of this uh, title race is if they lose all three of these matches, and I just don't think they're going to. They, they might, but there's no reason for us to think that based on how they've played. Right, this yeah, year. right. They've only got two losses this season in the league. So I, I heard it again in the last week. Well, that's nice. It's been fun, but they've got these three matches coming up, and they'll be out of it after that. I. I I don't know why we keep making these assumptions. We're making it based on history, and I'm as into history, Richard, as you know mm-hmm. anyone is. But this season is different. This Leicester team is different. They've got a big club manager, too. They don't. Nigel Wilson's not managing them. They've got Claudio Ranieri, whose track record, his pedigree, you can laugh about his stint at Greece, but that's international form. I don't think that's applicable. You you look at his record as a, as a club manager, and it's pretty darn good. So I... I don't expect Leicester to fall away, and I don't expect them to this game on Tuesday, and I don't expect them to fall out of the title anytime soon. If I were a Leicester fan, I would be far more concerned about the draw against Bournemouth and the draw against Aston Villa, because those seem to hint... Which were games where Mares missed penalties in both games. Right, right. But those seem to hint that Leicester now needs to find another gear to deal with these teams that are going to treat them as recognized favorites. And that's not something Leicester had to deal with during the first half of the season. But it's something they're going to right. increasingly that, that have to deal Bournemouth with. Game was very, the Bournemouth game was very surprising to me because Bournemouth has tried to play with even the better in the league. And the Leicester game, they sat back. Mm-hmm. And they were they were unlucky not to get a goal on the break a couple times in that game. So uh, that, that that's a good shirt. I think the Leicester teams now... The teams further down the table are viewing Leicester as a top four team, a top six team, one of the better teams in the league. Now we can't we can't uh, let them sit back and counter us. We need we need to approach games differently. So maybe that's something to think about after they get through this three match stretch. But all three of these teams that we're talking about are going to come after uh, Liverpool will. Uh, and certainly Arsenal and Manchester City will. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. Let's talk about the specific matchup, Leicester City versus Liverpool. You mentioned Liverpool winning the reverse fixture at Anfield. So that prompts uh, a question we should probably ask about almost any game in the second half of the season. Why should this one be different? I think you're looking at a Liverpool team that is inconsistent, that still doesn't know their best side. Obviously, they, ca- they came really good in the second half against uh, Norwich. They've had two games since then. We, we, talk, we, we, we talked earlier in this podcast, we spoke about the rotation for the FA Cup, but their, their best team did play a cup match and had to play 120 minutes against Stoke. They didn't look particularly incisive in that game. So I, I really think that this is a situation where they're 
they still have a lot of question marks in Liverpool. You're not sure where you're going to consistently get reliable goal scoring from. And the, the reality is Leicester hasn't given up a lot of goals lately. Leicester's right. uh, go- goals allowed total is still high because of earlier season. But I, 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 I'm under the impression at this point that we're going to see uh, a good defensive effort from Leicester and they'll get at least run. And I think one of the things that Liverpool has to be wary of is they still have on the back line, left back, that's uh, Mares will be switched to the right side or will be playing on the right side and you'll have to mark him. You'll have to deal with him. Uh, Mark Albrighton is very good on the left side. So you're, you're not going to want uh, Nathaniel Klein to get lost and, and, and commit too much to, to the attack. And their central defenders going up against uh, Vardy and Okazaki. That's a, that, that's not, not a good matchup. That's no. not a favorable matchup. Any way you look at it, I don't, whether it's Kolo Torre or Sacco or now Steven Cocker is with the team. I, I think, if I'm Klopp, I'm probably going to stick with Torre. I mean, I, I don't want to take the chance of Cocker in, in this game, but maybe Cocker's just an emergency striker. That's all he is. <laughs> right, right. Which seems to be the reason he was loaned to uh, right. to, to Liverpool. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I really, even looking at the matchup, think that Leicester's going to create chances, they're going to create opportunities, and they're going to get goals, which means uh, Liverpool is going to have to a- answer with, with the goals of their own. One more point, and I know I've made this on previous shows. Leicester even when they struggled in those games against Aston Villa and Bournemouth, when they didn't get the results, and even when the goal scoring disappeared, the play, the movement, the, 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 the counter-attacking uh, decision-making, the decision-making on the ball, playing the right pass, that sort of thing never changed. So mm. I haven't actually seen any discernible drop-off in Leicester's play. Whereas I have discernible drop-off in both Manchester City and Arsenal's from other points in the season. Now, the results have changed at times for Leicester because they haven't gotten those goals, but they, their, their level of play has not dropped off the entire season. And I, I, we yeah. can't say that about any other team. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. When you watch Leicester play, Jamie Vardy is still working his ass off and creating chances. And the difference is we've seen Drinkwater miss some easy chances. We've seen Mares miss some easy dead ball from the spot chances. And we've seen Jamie Vardy not finish the way that he did over his first couple of uh, months of the season. But the play itself is still there. And where that's relevant to Liverpool is, going back to what I asked you, is the differences in Liverpool between that confident team that beat Leicester and was still riding that initial wave after Klopp came on board, and now it's not only in that lack of confidence, but they don't have Martin Skirtle. Dan Lovren has been injured. Uh, Felipe Cacchino isn't back. James Milner is having to play that hybrid forward, covering so much ground on that side role uh, that we've seen him play very well. But it's one thing to play that against teams that don't have wingers. It's another one when you have Mark Albrighton that you're going to have to track all day. Is, is Milner going to be able to do that as well as help a team that struggled to get goals? It still doesn't have a forward that's reliable as far as goals. Even though Firmino has had his moments, is he going to be able to do that dual role? Yeah, I think that this is a real concern for uh, Jurgen Klopp. Then if you put in Christian Benteke, he might get you a goal, but his energy level, his work rate isn't, isn't good enough to play against uh, a team like Leicester, for sure. And you've got a situation also in this match where Conte has continued to be this dominant, dominant midfield player winning the ball. He and Drinkwater have such great understanding of each other's movements and each other's games. And I really am at the point where I think that if you don't have an additional midfielder or you don't do something to, t- uh, to, to take Conte out of his game, then your chances of beating Leicester are minimal. And he has been, I think, 
we've talked a lot about Mesut Ozil on this podcast, but I think Conte, as the season goes on, I, th- I, I really look at him as maybe the single most influential player in this league. Mm. And that's saying a lot. It's a guy that was playing in Liga 2 a year and a half ago. Mm. It was another player that Leicester now, uh, found that they identified through their scouting network, the very kind of robust statistics and other yeah. metrics in addition to actual, but they don't, they don't substitute that entirely for seeing a player play. They, they still do the basic scouting, but then they, they enhance it with, with uh, statistics and with other metrics, not necessarily player stats. This is how they found Mares. This is how they found Conte. It, it seems to be working. Yeah, as much money as other teams and leagues appear to be wasting, Leicester appears to be getting more efficient about bring, bringing players in. Uh, I think that's a great point regarding Conte, but... Overall, in general, I think Conte uh, epitomizes this. I think there's a confidence that this Leicester City team seems to have, having made it through that December stretch where so many people were predicting they would come back to earth when they were facing Chelsea and had uh, the fixture congestion. You alluded to the Liverpool game. They've obviously not only survived that, they're in a stronger position now than they were entering that time. I think the attitudes between these two teams have gone in a different direction. At the same time, I guess I don't know how to pick this game card to because with Liverpool, I'm always expecting it to click at some point. I think so much of what has happened to them over the last two months has been a product of fitness and fixture congestion. Neither of those two things have actually cleared up that much, but maybe a full week of training the first team on a regular schedule, which involves the rest, the preparation, the continued adjustment to Klopp's system. Maybe that could make a difference here for Liverpool. Even though they did have a match midweek, maybe the people that didn't have to worry about that match are going to be able to be fresh at the King Power Stadium. Yeah, that's, that's certainly very possible. I mean, I'm expecting Liverpool to click at some point also, even though I mentioned that I don't believe that their results in the league matter this much this this season. I, this, they still don't want to finish 15, which would be a catastrophic uh, disaster. They have, I don't believe they finished lower than eighth in the Premier League era, so uh, which was under Kenny Daglish a few seasons ago. So I, obviously these are the types of games where you want to start getting results and you want to start getting some confidence, and they very well might. Uh, I, I think that a draw is probably a very safe pick here. As far as Liverpool clicking at some point, that's um, that's going to be important for guys who are looking to stay with this club beyond this season because I think there are a number of transfer targets that Klopp has identified, and now he has seen three games in the FA Cup where the young players have gotten him through, gotten him the result he needs, and some of those guys might be integrated in the first-team squad next season. With that in mind, the guys that are playing regularly on the first team in the Premier League and also now in the League Cup final, they're going to need to step up and they're going to uh, to, to claim their spot or they're going to be replaced. Hmm. Interesting game. A lot of good angles and it's all going to be decided by a Simone Mignolet error, of course. And what it is, <laughs> Kartik and Nipun Chalpura are going to be back midweek to review this round as well as look forward to the next one as I continue my mini vacation. But for everybody that is not on vacation at the World Soccer Talk site in the World Talk Soccer Talk family, for Lawrence McKenna, who was out this week, Nipun Chopra. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Richard, you're on mini sabbatical, but even you are enjoying your football during this break. And thank you for joining us uh, this Sunday. You broke your little uh, vacation. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast in a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. 
I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 